And welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now. I'm Jake Novak here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Uh, again, I want to get to multiple topics today. Uh, first, the wrap-up from APAC. The last time you heard from me last week, we were still in the middle of the APAC conference. We were at the height of the APAC conference. And uh, a number of things happened towards the end of that conference and in the aftermath of that that really need to touch on. Uh, and, and I will get into that. And I also want to talk about... The new major story that is struggling to get out uh, and get heard again on the political front, and that, of course, is the discussion and debate about health care uh, and, more pointedly, health insurance coverage. Uh, and I will talk about that as well. And, of course, the reason for that getting back into the game is not only the legislative schedule, but, of course, the ending or, depending on how you look at it, the collapse of the Mueller report um, and its importance. So I want to get to all of those things. The first, I want to talk about how APAC uh, rounded up. Uh, when we last got together last week, uh, it was Sunday morning, it was, oh, sorry, Monday morning, and we were talking about the upcoming speeches that were coming from, first from Benny Gantz, the leading challenger to Benjamin Netanyahu in the upcoming Israeli elections, which are really, really close. We're now, we're just now 10 days away, really less than that, nine days away, because April 9th is, is when they are held. So depending on when you're listening to this, uh, if you're listening to this now on April 1st, obviously it's just eight days away, um, but it could be even shorter depending on if you, you're catching me on the Nachum Siegel archive page. But April 9th, folks, April 9th, obviously Israeli time, so it'll still be April 8th here in the States, early in the morning, our time or overnight time when the polls open in Israel. And the election is close. The The last few polls I've seen have shown it to be pretty close in one sense. In the, the, the real close election here is the race to see which individual party will get the most seats. For those of you who are even just slightly above the complete novice level of Israeli political uh, spectator, you know that no one party wins enough votes in Israel to control the Knesset, to control the parliament and the government. Uh, pretty much since the 1970s, it's been uh, forced coalition building. There are so many parties in Israel, so many options, and no one party can get the 61 seats in the Knesset that you need in the 120-member Knesset. I know it's an even number, which probably makes people rip their hair out, because that's what you need to, to run the parliament. You need a majority, so it can very often be a tie, which means you really have to work hard to get that coalition. But you need at least 61 seats. And no party is going to get anywhere near that. In fact, most parties probably, you know, the two biggest parties will struggle to get even half that. So coalitions must be built. So there's two, and even even three ways to look at the latest polls, and they're all pretty much in line, by the way. We're not seeing like we saw here in the United States, real great divergence among the major polls. Um, we are seeing the Blue and White Party, this brand new party created of people who are branding themselves as center-right or even center-center folks like uh, the leader of the party, Benny Gantz, the former Israeli army chief of staff. Yair Lapid is the number two kind of co-leader guy who used to be the head of Yesh Atid, who has always been a centrist. I mean, he might, on some days of the week, he's a center-left. On other days of the week, he's center-right. And by that, I mean, it depends on the policy. When it comes to Israeli security policy and peace process stuff, Lapid and that bloc have always been center-right. They've always really been pretty much in line with Likud or right-wing politics as far as that's concerned. They don't have any strange or silly illusions about the peace process. They're very, very concerned about Iran. They don't, they don't 
um, oppose Netanyahu or anyone on in those policies really per se. Uh, here and there, they might have a little bit of a complaint. It is Israel, after all. I'm not saying they don't complain. But uh, they're, on those kind of policies, they're center-right. On social issues, on issues of, for example, access to certain religious uh, locations for non-Orthodox Jews, they're center-left. In other words, Lapid and, uh, I assume, Gantz, if he's joining in with him, ha- are, are supporters of re- conservative and reform groups and egalitarian women's groups getting access to uh, praying at the Western Wall or at the Kotel. They're in favor of the more secular rules for marriage, those kinds of things. Um, and those things can be debated one way or the other. But that is the party right now, Blue and White, that's getting the most votes according to the polls, getting 31 seats uh, according to the polls in the Knesset. And Likud comes in at a close second at about 28. Now, if the polls are being conducted anyway like they were four years ago, in 2015, um, maybe you need to give one or two more seats to Likud because they've undercounted Likud. Um, in that poll, in those polls, they undercounted it more drastically than that. Um, but So that's one way to look at the polls. And the second way to look at the polls is, what are all the parties that are on the right of the center mark what, what are their numbers? And what are all the, the numbers of the parties on the left of center mark? And the parties on the right of center mark, depending on the way that you do the math and the way that some of these parties, for example, the religious parties, where they're going to choose to go. And remember, just because the religious parties are religious, it does not mean they will join into a right-wing coalition. Uh, they have, in the past, joined in with the groups that they felt would get the majority and, and give them the things that they wanted in return for joining their coalition. So, of course, 1992 being the best example of that, when they joined in with Yitzhak Rabin's coalition and gave the labor government, uh, it gave, that, it gave them control of the government. Um, so it's not a done deal. It's not definite that Shas and United Torah Judaism and those kinds of parties will join in with a right-wing bloc. But let's just say that they will, because most of the time they do. I'm saying it's just not a definite. But if you count up all those parties on their side, and you include the Chayrut party that Yossi Feiglin has, you're talking about 66 to 68 seats for that overall right-wing coalition, more more right or center, you know, center-right, right, a little bit more to the right uh, side of the of, of the ledger. So even though the blue and white party could very well win the most seats in the Knesset against any other party individually, the overall center or center-left side, the left side of that ledger, wouldn't have enough, would really be quite, really well short of the 61 they would need. They would need about 52. They would get about 52. And that includes, folks, the Arab parties. And I think I explained this last week. The Arab parties don't join in any coalitions with anybody in Israel. They don't do that They because their unwritten belief is that they don't really believe in the right of Israel to exist, even though they're, they're Arab member parties in the Knesset. I know it's crazy, but it's just the way it is. However, in the past, left-wing government coalitions have been able to say the, to the Israeli people or to other parties, hey, all the votes counted on the center-to-center-left side, the left side of the ledger, if you include the Arab parties, were a majority. So as they look at the religious parties, if you guys really want to have true legitimacy in a government, you really need to join on our side. And that's been done before in Israeli politics. As it looks like now, no one's really going to have be able to make that argument from the left. The blue and white won't be able to make it, certainly not merits or labor. Nobody will be able to make that argument because they'd be well short of 61 seats, uh, depending on all these polls that we're seeing. And again, I think these polls, just like in the United States, are probably uh, slanted towards the left as it is. So, uh, but let's just take them at their face value for now and understand that it's further to the right parties that are taking advantage of the 
loss of one or two seats that we're seeing now from the Likud side, for whatever reason. They're not going to the left. They're not going to Labor or Meretz or even Blue and White. Maybe some of them are, but clearly the majority of those people who are drifting away from Likud, either because of they've had it with ben- Benjamin Netanyahu or they don't want to, or they feel more connected to the, some of the other right-wing parties, and that's where they're going. They're not, they're not going over to the left and not going over to Blue and White, at least not in, in the majority numbers. So that's where we are right now heading into this election, April 9th. And we got a very important speech on, on what turned out to be really the last effective day of APAC because what happened with the rocket attacks into central Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu had to cancel his big Tuesday morning speech, he delivered it by video and instead. And that meant that Monday was really the last full day of, of APAC that really mattered to the, the events on the floor there at the Washington Convention Center. And so the big event was, was Benny Gantz's speech. Um, and I think that his speech in front of all of APAC was not bad. Uh, you heard me say in the weeks leading up to the, that, that speech that it would, be very import- it would be very important for him to speak English very, very well, better than he'd ever done before. And I think he did that close enough. I think he did a good job. He made a couple of self-deprecating jokes, which I think was really smart. The first joke he said is that you know me and not just because of my telephone, alluding to the hacked telephone scandal in Israel. His phone had been hacked and some of the recordings on it had been made public. Um, He stumbled a little over the word bipartisanship and then made fun of himself. He said, hey, I'm Israeli. That's a tough word to say in English. And that got a laugh. And he also walked away from the speaking podium a couple of times. Obviously, he was mic'd up on his lapel in addition to a mic at the podium. And that was really smart. I can't see Benjamin Netanyahu doing that. In, in a speech, I, I you know he he stands behind that behind that speaker behind that speaker's podium, uh, the stender if you want to call it in Yiddish, and doesn't really move from there. And he's obviously a super effective speaker. That's not a critique, but Benny Gantz gave himself a little bit of a different uh, persona in that speech, and I think he did well. Afterwards, um, the I twenty four news anchor Michelle McCory and I uh, got an interview with him backstage, and he didn't do as well in that interview. He looked more tired. He was very defensive, not as defensive as he had been in some of his interviews on Israeli television. So he improved from that. And i got to say, personally, I, I found him to be a likable guy. I just think he's in a very tough position in that he's just not well-polished enough to be a, a politician and run an election and handle it without the pressure. Now, there's a difference between saying off-the-cuff, outrageous things like a Donald Trump says and appearing defensive and, and appearing a little bit unhinged or not unhinged, but very, very uh, aggrieved. Uh, and that's where Benny Gantz kind of comes off that way. Uh, it's not great sometimes when you say something like a Donald Trump and it's offensive or it's bombastic, that kind of thing, but it does make you look like you're in charge, or at least that you've got some real gravitas on your side. But when Benny Gantz complains about Netanyahu maybe trying to kill him or these kinds of things, or looking like he's tired or getting defensive with reporters instead of trying to work it with them, it doesn't work for him, for whatever reason. Um, I'd just be really surprised, no matter what happens in the election, if he turns out to be the prime minister. In other words, even if there's a big shocker and the left side of the ledger gets enough seats to form a coalition, I can't believe that he would be the prime minister. Um, it just doesn't It doesn't really shake out for me. But we'll see. We'll see. Uh, I, as, of, as of now, I think what's going to happen, if you're asking for my prediction is that the right uh, side of the ledger will come up with well over 60, 61 seats in the Knesset. And the real fight will go on for a couple of weeks, if not shorter, but probably a couple of weeks, deciding whether those parties are really willing to back Netanyahu again 
for prime minister. And I think that he'll have to make some deals. And best case, you know, my best, not best case scenario, my, my most likely case scenario is that he will be prime minister. He will get another a sensible four, you know, again, it's a parliamentary system, so it's not a guaranteed four-year term. But you have to expect him to be prime minister for another four years. <sighs> Depending on what happens with these indictments, which are, you know, which will probably be announced in the fall, and, of course, then we'll, that, that's when Netanyahu will have a, a full legal opportunity to defend himself. He really hasn't had that opportunity yet, which is one of the maddening things about this, which is very similar to what's gone on with the Mueller investigation here in the United States, is that while these investigations are going on and these leaks are coming out and reports go on, there's really not much the, the people who are being supposedly accused or being investigated can do about it, not legally. They can go on TV and bash it which is something that both Donald Trump did on television and Twitter, and Benjamin Netanyahu has done the same. But they really can't put together a legal counteroffensive. Uh, so when that happens, we'll see how that goes on. Um, but the election's going to be really interesting. Uh, almost, I can't, you know, Israeli elections almost always are. I can't think of too many that weren't. Uh, 2013, you kind of knew what was going to happen in that election. That really wasn't a big shocker. Uh, 2015, the polls turned out to be wrong, so that was an exciting election. And I think this is going to be exciting because, again, if the Likud and the right side of the ledger win the more than 60, 61 seats that I expect them to, but but Likud ends up with maybe less than 28 seats, it's going to be harder for Netanyahu to make that case that he should be the prime minister for another four years. Uh, I can't think of anyone else who would really make that case any better, so he's probably still going to get it. But that means he needs to give up a lot more than he would probably like to. So let's see what happens. Um, again, as you know, I, I'm working on the election with I-24 News, which is available on Cablevision or Altice if you have that. You can also watch it online. So if you, And, I, of course, we'll have plenty of analysis of the election here on Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network in the coming weeks and also after the election. But if you want to see it live as the election's going on on April 9th, uh, I highly recommend you tune in to I-24 and watch it there. And, of course... Follow me on Twitter at JakeJakeNY as I'll be tweeting out a bunch of news updates and things like that during the course of the election. Um, so that's the way APAC kind of wrapped up. And then there was one really ugly thing that happened that I really want to make sure everyone knows about because clearly it's not getting out there. And it's so frustrating to me. You know, look, folks, I, I, I've been in the news for 25 years. I've been in the news business for that long. And I know, I, I, I promise you, I know and I'm aware that people can't follow the news 24-7 like I apparently do. I get it. It's not something that you can just take time out from work for, to do all the time. It is my work. So I am not looking at you with the scolding eye uh, when I say this. But I do want to say that it is sad that some of the developments in the news get lost Um but because the folks who are making the news are deliberately kind of playing that game when they know something that they say on one day will get more attention than something they say on the next. So that's my little preamble to what uh, happened this week with Congressman Steny Hoyer. He's a Democrat congressman, longtime congressman from Maryland. And let me say this first, a really good friend of Israel, really good friend of Israel throughout his entire career. I don't want to besmirch that in any way whatsoever. Um, but he gave a speech on Sunday night at APAC where the theme of APAC, which really was the theme this year, was to fight anti-Semitism, which has never really been APAC's main goal. But this year it became the issue. Obviously, a big reason why is the comments of Representative Ilan Omar, the newly elected Democrat woman from Minnesota and Congress. And I get why that happened. So a lot of people on both the left and the right speaking at APAC 
decided to make almost th- their entire speeches about anti-Semitism and a little bit less about the state of Israel. And I get why. And that's what Senny Hoyer did, too. And Senny Hoyer started talking about the new voices of anti-Semitism that we're hearing. And clearly, 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 folks, he was referring to Elon Omar. He was referring to Rashida Tlaib, the newly elected congresswoman from Michigan, the Democrat who is a Palestinian, a Palestinian origin. Um, and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who has spoken very much on the side of the Linda Sarsours and the anti-Israel types in politics right now. And that's so clearly, folks, who he was talking to. The audience all took him to mean that that's who he was talking about, etc., etc., etc. And it was a great speech in that context. Great speech in that context. And people from all over the spectrum, especially those who are really hoping to push the narrative that the Democrats are just as pro-Israel as the Republicans now, gushed all over his speech, talked about how great it was. And again, for the first 12, 16 hours after his speech, I agree. I agreed. But then, folks, you've got to do your research. (laughs) Again, I understand why you can't do it as easily as I can. But you've got to follow up on the news here. Because people were still talking about how great Steny Hoyer's speech was, even as recently as this past weekend. And my own rabbi, the Shabbat, talked about how great his speech was. Folks, you're missing the big story because on Monday, when reporters came to Hoyer's office on Capitol Hill to ask him about his speech, he took a big giant step back that was dishonest. He said in front of all those reporters just the bald-faced lie that, oh no, I wasn't talking about Tlaib, Omar, and Ocasio-Cortez. I was talking about all these new people in Congress and all these voices, and I'm not just talking about those three. We had more than 60 new Democrats elected, blah, blah, blah. Now, I want to say something about cognitive dissonance and delusion in American politics. There's a lot of it going on. For example, when I heard people talking about, and even now, talking about the theory that the Trump campaign actively and effectively colluded with Russia, a lot of people talking about it, I I, I could tell they really believed it. They really believed it, even though there was no evidence, and Mueller has found definitively no evidence of any such collusion. Even now, they're still believing it, and and it's depressing and scary and sad. But when I hear a lot of people talking about it, I would say at least half of them, I think they really believe this nonsense. But when Steny Hoyer got in front of those cameras on Monday and said, oh, I wasn't talking about Omar, he he did not believe his own words. He, He just wasn't. And I don't know if you want to call it duplicity. I don't want if you call it if you want to call it talking out of both sides of your mouth. I'm just going to call it dishonesty. I'm going to call it lie. Steny Hoyer lied, and he pulled one of those tricks that Yasser Arafat used to pull. For those of you who remember how he used to say peaceful stuff in English, and then he would speak to his own people in Arabic and say the opposite. It's it's of a similar vein. And folks, we cannot let people get away with this. Now, again, Steny Hoyer, I still believe, is a good friend of Israel. I'm not saying he's changed his mind about Israel, but I, ha- but I am saying he's being deliberately dishonest. And Jewish people, or people who are at APAC who are still gushing over his speech, need to get informed and follow what happened the next 12 hours later. And if you're not doing that, you're not being helpful. You're allowing people to lie to you, and you're enabling this kind of lying and to go on. And it must stop. It must stop. And again... If you didn't hear about it on Monday, I don't blame you. If you didn't hear about it on Tuesday, but if already passed by, by Shabbat, you didn't hear about it and you're still gushing over a speech, come on. Come on. And again, if you feel that you can't follow this, this is too much to follow, follow my Twitter feed. You'll get 90% of the things you're missing at JakeJakeNY or follow my Facebook feed. It's on there. I will help as best I can. That's my job. 
But also just keep following this kind of news. You have to be more of an active news consumer. You've heard me say this on Novak Now many times when I've criticized the news media. I've always said the answer is the same thing. All of us need to be more discerning consumers of news. And that means we need to be a little bit more proactive about what we do to get our information. We can't just sit around and wait for the New York Times to lie to us and come up to our doorstep. You know, that reminds me of a story a few days after 9-11. This is when I was still teaching as an adjunct professor of journalism at NYU which I did and I enjoyed for six years, but I had to stop doing it. I just ran out of time career-wise. It was, it was a time-consuming job on top, on top of another full-time job. And in the days after 9-11, the journalism department had a good idea. They, they got together, everyone, and everyone was invited to NYU or in the neighborhood to come to what they were calling a teach-in just to discuss some of the things that had happened. And professor after professor got up to that podium and talked about how they were waiting on the day of 9-11 for their New York Times to get delivered. And I thought to myself, well, geez, I hope that they weren't, wa- <laughs> if they weren't waiting for a newspaper to be delivered to find out about maybe an emergency evacuation or something. I mean, get, forget about the political leanings and the nonsense that you see in the New York Times all the time. But, you know, look, you can't do that anymore. We're, we're, we're beyond that point in our lives. We have to be active. If you care about Israel, if you care about the Jewish American condition, you've got to be active. You've got to be following social media. You've got to be working very hard to make sure the sources are reliable and accurate, and you cannot just wait for a newspaper to be delivered. And I know a lot of people listening, or friends of yours listening, or relatives of yours listening are older, maybe they don't have iPhones, maybe they're not tech savvy, I get it, teach them how to do it. If Israel is important to them, they can learn how to get on a phone and get on a Twitter feed. They can learn how to get online and read stuff that's more current and more reliable than the newspapers. Okay? That's, I think it's a simple sacrifice, and if little kids can do it, so can older folks. Very, very simple. Has to happen. Has to happen. So, again, Seni Hoyer is still a good friend of Israel. I'm not, I'm not questioning that. But he lied to us. He lied to us on Sunday night, and then he lied to us again on Monday. And APAC has to find a way to stop enabling liars. They just have to. And one of the things I think they can do to fix that, and I'll, I'll, I'll reveal a little bit of a personal piece of history here on Novak Now on the Nuckland Siegel Network. I applied for the APAC's, APAC communica- communications director job this past summer. And I, I don't think I was a finalist or anything else like that. I didn't get an interview or anything else like that. I got a little bit of a phone screener. But one of the things I emphasized in my application and in my letters to them was APAC has to stop becoming and acting like a lobby group and more becoming an information source. And never, and what's happened in the six months since, or seven or eight months since, has really convinced me that I was really very much on the money on that. On that, the Israel APAC can no longer go around thinking it influences people. If it's just going to allow people like Steny Hoyer and all the people who voted for the Iran deal to lie to them or go against their policy and then still be be schmoozed by them, then it doesn't really work. I think APAC needs to have a daily, hourly, they need to be an Israel news source. I think they need to have a website and offer videos and other social media that offers 24-7 news about Israel, put in the context of fairness and honesty, which so few people do. I really think they need to do that. And I also think they need to start portraying themselves as an information, informational source for people. They, They provide information. That's what they do information about Israel that's fair and honest and gets that true story out there and, has, and it comes in a real abundance. 
So if you're interested in Israeli culture, you've got some place to go. If you're interested in Israeli politics, you've got some place to go. And I'm not pulling any of this out of the thin air, folks, because if anyone, one of you were at the APAC conference, you know that's exactly what they do at APAC. In between the political speeches and the presentations are all these video presentations about Israeli culture. I saw one about a, a, a theater group that, that meets in Israel that has Arabs and Jews in it. I saw stuff about hospitals. I saw stuff about television. I, I, I saw the culture of Israel, the, whole, the true full story of Israel, as much as you can pack it into a few days presented either by the speakers or by the video. This is something that they have access to. They do it well, but they're not using it enough. And I think it's being done in favor of this myth that you know they, they influence members of Congress. I, I, I don't think they do that. I think they provide a microphone for, for the people who truly influence the members of Congress, which are the voters, you know, in a huge part of this country, whether it's in the Jewish areas or certainly in the evangelical areas. It's the voters who are influencing the members of Congress to, to vote in a certain way. So I want that to get that out there. Uh, quickly, just the, the last few minutes of Novak now, now here on the Nachum Siegel Network, I want to talk about the other big story that is now starting to bubble up in America, which is, of course, the debate over health care and what's going to happen with the Obamacare situation. Of course, this is bubbling up mostly because the Mueller report has fallen flat for those who are hoping that this would de- de- dethrone or, or, or get Donald Trump out of office. Uh, Mueller report finding, finding no evidence of collusion, couldn't make anything definitive on uh, obstruction of justice. And so now they're looking for other things. And, you know, the Republicans have been, and President Trump have been a little vulnerable on health care. Um, and I have written many times, again, look at my Twitter feed. I've posted a bunch of other stuff. Two years ago when the Republicans were first trying to tackle this and they failed, I wrote some very, very basic outlined facts that people need to know before we start addressing health insurance and health coverage and health care in this country and also some real solutions. And a couple of things that really need to be remembered are, one, health care costs in this country are going up. And the biggest reason why they're going up is because the... sickest 5% of the population, the people who are, you know, by sick, I mean people who really are either have a, have a disease or they're dying, are the reason for 50% of our costs. So what are we going to do about that 5% group? And that's the pre-existing condition group. Are we going to try to spread their health care costs, spread that pain across everyone in America, whether they're healthy, young, rich, or poor, which is what Obamacare does and which insurance, the insurance model does? Or are we going to try to isolate them financially and put them in a special classification of care where they get great care, but the pain is not spread out over every person who bothers to get health insurance. It's still going to cost taxpayers money, and it's still going to lose money, as I wrote in many of the articles that you'll see on my Twitter feed, but it won't be as disastrous as Obamacare is. It won't be so disastrous as to encourage young people not to sign up for health insurance, which is exactly what Obamacare did, by making it so costly for them because they were spreading the pain and the costs of all that health care through everyone who's healthy. That's not the way... It, it can't work in a collective that way. It has to be another way to do it, and I outline that. And I want people to pay attention to that very carefully. The other thing I want everyone to remember about anything that costs money or anything that you want to have in life, the, there's, there's a law that, <laughs> that really governs it, and it's called the law of supply and demand. And if you want something to go down in cost, and if you want something to be, go up in accessibility, you have to increase the supply. Anything that you do other than that to, to lower the price is is a false, is a faulty, impermanent solution that will lead to either rationing or the blowing up of a system. So we can't reduce demand for healthcare overnight unless everyone starts really, really getting healthy with their exercising and eating, although that can help and we should definitely do that. But remember, 
A lot of illnesses and sicknesses have nothing to do with that. You just, it's inherited. It's unfair. Not fair. I get it. If you've inherited cancer or something from a family member or whatever it is, because it's in your genes, I get it. But that won't solve the problem. In other words, if we all just start dieting really well and exercising, that's a big part of it, but it won't do enough. If we want to lower the cost of healthcare, folks, we have to increase the supply. And I see nothing in anyone's proposals to fix healthcare or fix health insurance that does anything like that. And for those of you who listen for a long time on Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network, or you've followed me on Twitter or Facebook, you know that one of the things I've called for is that we need to make it easier to become a doctor and open new hospital facilities in this country. And right now we make it impossible. We make it really, really hard. So those are the things I want you to remember as we move on here. And again, please follow me on Twitter for all those updates you need to get about Israel. Don't be misinformed. This is Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'll speak to you again next week.